Blog Talk Radio. Facebook. We have a Nico down here playing. Yeah, I'm going to see. No, he's not. And, <laughs> and Miss Yuna is going to make her very, brief very brief, reluctant appearance. So everybody say hi to Yuna. Hi, Yuna. As soon as I take my hand away, she's going to be. No? Are you going to operate the computer tonight and read all the comments? That's what she's in charge of. You can grab Yes, you do. So, hope everybody's doing well. Uh, happy Monday, last day of July. Halfway through the end of my birthday month. Yeah, the end of your birthday month. Halfway through the most uh, generally the knock on wood, the two most miserably hot months of the year around here. But yeah, so. Yeah. Last yeah. oh. week was bad. Last week was very hot. I feel like still recovering from that. Uh-huh. I think, uh, how did your, your rainy tour go? Uh, actually, not too bad because I altered our John Marshall just to speed it mm-hmm. and ended up um, getting undercover right after it started raining. Yep. John Marshall has a lot of coverage. It does. Yeah. So. And they told two stories in recover, and then they basically went bye bye, and I got to tell the last story. Yep. Nice, nice, nice. So, yes, yeah, yeah. we had nasty storms around here on Saturday evening, but we managed to get our tours off all the same. Yep. And Saturday, had a, I ended with a double rainbow, so, you know. Yeah. Yep. Had a good time with our friends over at the John Marshall House and the Central for Paranormal Research and Investigation, CPRI. Yes. Always a ridiculously fun time. Always. We actually had one of my guests. It touched inside the John Marshall. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wait, what room? Mary's room. Yeah. Well, well, not Paul's. Yeah. So, but yeah. But Mary's room inside the window where they see the door. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was funny because, um, sir, don't knock that out. I don't know. There, there's some interesting feelings in that room. And it was my group. And, and uh, Brad and I heard uh, footsteps upstairs while we were all downstairs. Oh, okay. Yeah, Saturday was a it was a really good night there at the John Marshall. Was, uh, so I'm sure the thunderstorm was feeding activity. Yeah, but uh, we'll we'll be back there again at the end of next month. I think August 26th, another Saturday night. And actually, tickets are already a quarter of the way sold for that one. Yeah, so, yeah, if you have them now, get them now. Yeah, so usually, uh, even in October, usually you know our it, like the week leading up to the tours is when things wind up selling, but a quarter of our tickets are sold for the uh, John Marshall House tour at the end of next month. So if you want to join us for that, jump on it. Yes, that would be me and Marsha, because I will be flying home from Yeah. I'll be there. I'll be there uh, doing the whole Green Master type thing. Hopefully not getting eaten by the lines. I don't know where I came up with that.
So lots of spooky stuff there, which, I mean, it shouldn't come as too much of a surprise. There are a lot of spooky shows and stuff like that that are based in Ohio. Even the shows that aren't based in Ohio, like the, like the Ghost Hunters and stuff like that, they've been to Ohio for multiple places. A couple of them are going to be, we'll, we'll talk about a couple of them tonight. There's um, a mayor in Ohio that has a Facebook page that is dedicated to just being weird. That's awesome. Very <laughs> But, yeah, so, yeah, we got uh, we got a few stops to go ahead and uh, bounce around good old Columbus, Ohio. Just about an eight-hour drive up the road from us here in Richmond. Uh, it's only eight hours away. It's only about eight hours away. Another capital city. Okay. And, yeah, you're there. It's a good. <laughs> but, yeah, so... I don't have you did not write I did, oh, I didn't write an introduction for Columbus, Ohio. Shame on me. Okay, I got one. Go for it. Columbus, Ohio. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> haunted. 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 It is haunted. See? There you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, and uh, Roberta. So, Roberta is from Ohio, not Columbus, mm-hmm. but she's from Ohio. Um, Thank you for watching again, Roberta. Glad you're here tonight. Just uh, visit there a couple times a year, and there's a lot of uh, Native American burial mounds uh, across yeah. Columbus. Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, we admittedly we don't have really anything like nothing Native American on this particular episode. But uh, yeah, there is a lot of um, again yeah, the natives certainly had a very strong presence there, mm-hmm. and um, a lot of spooky stuff. There yeah. are lots of people. So let's dive right, right in on that. Okay. Uh, we're going to dive right into uh, the edge of downtown Columbus with an earshot of traffic cruising along I-71. This is a charming Victorian-style home that dates back to 1875. The brick structure was customary two stories plus attic. Server House is a beautiful home featuring many of the architectural flourishes of the Victorian era, including wood finishes, beveled glass, and ceramic fireplaces. Before the neighborhood that the house resides in was built, this part of Columbus had been home to the Central Ohio Lunatic Asylum. You all know where this is going, right? Of course. <laughs> the asylum burned down in 1858, killing six women in the fire and fatally injuring another. A large parcel of land that this institution sat on was then divided into three residential sections. The Thurborough's house is on one of these three parcels. Each section had an oblong, oval-shaped park in the middle of their section, making it a very fashionable neighborhood. While we were unable to find information on the original tenants of Thurborough's house, it's reasonable to assume that a well-to-do family lived there until the turn of the century. In 1900, it was converted into a very desirable rental property. Many people enjoyed this home, including the Thurboroughs. The home furnishings reflect the popular Mission Oak-style decor found in the Sears catalog around 1913. And this is to reflect the time when well-known cartoonist and witty short story author James Thurber lived there with his parents and his brothers. He was the middle son of the three Thurber boys, his older brother being William, his younger brother being Robert. The three of them must have been, so let's just say a handful. James lost his sight in one eye while playing William Tell with his brothers. He totally went blind later in life. 
the one, uh, the family only lived in this house for a time. It's one of three houses that they lived in while they lived in Columbus. After the Thurbos moved on to another home in Columbus, the home temporarily stopped being a rental, and in the early 1920s became the Wallace Collegiate School and Conservatory of Music. For James's part, it was at Thurbo House that he lived while he was attending Ohio State University. Because he couldn't complete the required ROTC course at Ohio State, he wasn't able to graduate from college. But he was given a posthumous uh, degree. Thank you. After a lifetime of literary contributions and cartoon fun, his natural talent and gifts opened up doors of opportunity for him, even without having a college degree. Because of James's contributions to the literary field, uh, that it was that because of those literary contributions that the home was saved uh, from the wrecking ball. After serving as a conservatory and music school for a couple of decades, the home was again converted back to the rental in 1946, this time in the form of a boarding house. Boarding house status led the home to fall into a state of disrepair and instability. In the 1970s, a lot of older homes were being torn down, but the Thurber House was donated instead to the Jefferson Center for the Learning and the Arts, who did someone's considerable efforts to preserve its history. In 1983, the outside of the home was restored following an old photograph and remaining physical evidence of what was originally there. Front porch and the stairs leading up to the home's second floor were entirely rebuilt by local master craftsmen, and with the help of Robert Thurber, James's younger brother, the restoration of the interior began in March of 1984. Robert was an important source of information to make sure that this was done authentically. He remembered a lot of the details and put the core to the habits of the Thurber family. Now owned by the Jefferson Center for the Learning and the Arts, the Thurber House is a literary center offering year-round programming for adults and children. Some of the family's personal items have been donated to this house museum, of course. On display are Robert's sports memorabilia collection, some of William's Western and American Indian paintings, and a selection of James's manuscripts, cartoons, letters, <laughs> first edition of his book, and some of his owner's awards and original drawings. Some of his books and memorabilia are on sale in the Thurber County store located in the dining room. Along the walls of the second floor between the bedrooms are pictures of the Thurber family and important family documents that are hung up. Down the back staircase leads to the dining room, one can see the Wall of Fame. These are pictures of all the authors who have visited the Thurber house throughout the years. The Literary Center and previous home has long had a reputation for haunting. James Thurber himself claims to have heard a ghost in the house on November 17, 1915, and is believed to be his dying day that the home was haunted. He even changed the address of the house in his short story, The Night the Ghost Got In, so he wouldn't scare the people who were living at 77 Jefferson Avenue. Two historical items are potentially associated with the unusual activity. Of course, there's the aforementioned Central Ohio lunatic asylum that burned down. And also, in 1904, a few years before the Thurber family moved in, a prominent jeweler named Thomas Tracy Stress was living at the house. One evening, while his bedroom, uh, while he was in his bedroom getting ready for supper, <laughs> he picked up a gun he thought was not loaded and accidentally shot and killed himself in the home. His funeral service was held in the home a few days later. 
well recalls seeing shadow people walk in front of the windows. He also experienced a man, uh, hearing a man loudly walking around the table while he was upstairs in the bathroom. James and his brother approached the sound, which could be continued to move closer to them to coming up the stairs. James did not say anything and quickly retreated into the bathroom until the sounds of footsteps ended. James also witnessed books quickly moving across the room without the help of anyone that he could see. And over the years, some guests have had books thrown at them, sometimes accompanied by an indistinct figure as well. A still photo of, of one of their ghosts was taken and hung on the wall at the top of the stairs. It looks like a translucent, translucent apparition wearing skates. Visitors to the Clareboro House are welcome to ask about the ghosts. Over the years, a wide variety of unusual activity has been reported by both staff and guests, <laughs> including the clock chiming, despite it not being actually operational. The glass in the picture print and explicitly shattering all over the floor. Also, sightings of glowing orbs and a man in a collared shirt, plus those phantom footsteps that have been heard by James, have also been heard by the staff and guests. And then there's the sensation of being touched and a little bit more. The deputy director of Thurborough House, Ann Povell, spoke of the events around the demise of the jewelers who lived in the home. Quote, one story we always heard was that years before Thurborough moved in, a man and his wife lived in the home. A man got a strange phone call saying, go home, just find your wife in the arms of a strange man. He comes home finds that and ends up shooting her and then shooting himself. But that's not the real story. Back in 1904, Thomas Tracy Tress, who was probably jeweler of Renaissance, lived here with his wife. One night, he was upstairs with his wife and someone named Miss Tina Ackerman. I've always wondered who she was, but they haven't been able to find out that information. Uh, and Thomas's wife <clears throat> mentioned something about his gun, which was sitting out, being dangerous. He said, oh, but it's not dangerous. It's not loaded. See? He put it oh, under his chest and shot himself. So someone did die here, although not as sinisterly as we originally thought. <laughs> yeah, just very stupid. However, a ghost group came in here once, and the electronic voice phenomenon they recorded was clear as day. They asked up to the air, did you accidentally shoot yourself in this house? And I swear the voice came back in the recorder saying, ask her. A staff member at the Cerebral House, Leah Wharton, explained other bizarre things that happened in the room where Tress passed away. Leah said, we've had people report seeing an image of a man dressed in a colored shirt behind them in the mirror. We had one resident who brought her dog. The dog wouldn't let me get near the corner. On a separate event, one of the in-house writers who stayed one summer in the attic apartment described having his own encounter with the deceased jeweler. He described a large, overweight, somewhat stooped, black torso shadow that, that was seen passing by a second-story window, blocking out the hallway light. Leah also told of a broken clock that had somehow started working again one day. So recalled while we were back on the show for Ghost Hunters, they were investigating. They caught on camera the front of the clock face opening up by itself. It's not easy to open up. Leah then proceeded to demonstrate just how difficult it was to open the back, uh, open the door in the clock face. It's not something that would have just happened. She also talked about how the spirited presidents of the Cerebral House seemed to 
push some people away. Because we had a cleaning crew who comes in here to uh, clean up after hours and on weekends. They won't come in at night anymore. They've had things happen to them. That's all they would say. Yeah, Nico. I'm not sure if he's happy or not. I don't think he's happy, but he's not fighting it either. How many needs to hand this over to Danny? Are you going to be good? I'm good. I don't know, good. <laughs> Other people say, oh. or your brother, just don't knock the camera. <laughs> well, he took his little thing away. Yeah. Apparently, uh, you're making enough of a ruckus they can hear you in the background. Oh, boy. Dragging that tail. <laughs> it's his favorite toy. Favorite toy. He brings it to bed. Oh. So. But, yeah. I don't know which one to do. Go get your toy. And we have Alex here now. Happy, happy Monday, Alex. Oh, yeah. All right. So, moving on, we are going to go to Ohio State University. Now, um, let me just preclude this with I could do an entire episode on Ohio State. I did. Maybe one day. Today is not that day. We're going to give you a nice little sample, though. So, ideally, I yeah, I, this is a good one. I like this. Ideally, institutions of higher learning are environments where young people who are first stepping out on their own are encouraged to become independent thinkers and dynamic individuals. In the face of so much newness, university and college cultures often develop systems of ritual and ceremony, which provide a contrast to their independence as well as comfort and structure to students as they transition into adulthood. At Ohio State University, one such annual ceremony, if you want to call it that, is football week. And one of the most notable rituals involved with football week is for many of the students to jump into the frigid waters of Mirror Lake before the football game with Ohio State's biggest rival, the University of Michigan. Where, yeah. Now, where did this icy tradition originate? It may be that this now voluntary form of masochism has descended from a turn-of-the-century hazing ritual where upperclassmen would assert their dominance by throwing freshmen into the lake. This became a common occurrence during May Week, an annual demonstration of school spirit, and as the rivalry between Ohio State and Michigan grew, May Week activities slowly shifted to the increasingly popular Michigan Week, and the tradition of voluntarily throwing oneself into the lake was born. The idea of young people being cast into a lake before an important event has been around for centuries. The Aztec, Mayan, Celtic, and Nordic cultures all participated in this practice as an offering to their gods during significant times of the year. And although the young people they hurled into the water were victims of human sacrifice in those ancient times, the Mirror Lake jump certainly invokes thoughts of these ancient rituals and has on at least one occasion proven to be just as deadly. It was only in 2015 that a 22-year-old Dayton man died during the annual ritual. After this tragic event, the university stepped in and put a stop to the Mirror Lake plunge. According to the campus rumor mill, this wasn't the only time such a tragedy occurred. Stories persist of a member of the Alpha Omicron Pi sorority that broke her neck during a Mirror Lake jump in the 1980s. The legend states that her fellow sorority sisters carried the body back to the house and hid her to avoid the repercussions of underage drinking gone horribly wrong. 
Ever since, many have claimed to hear screaming and splashing in the waters of the lake, only to see the surface mirror smooth when they turn to find the source of the commotion. Well, college students make questionable decisions. Drunk college students make even more questionable decisions. And drunk college students that are in a panic really make very, very questionable decisions. Anyway, another tale tells of a jogger that was killed during the lake and near the lake during a mugging. This young man is said to be seen running by the lake, looking over his shoulder before vanishing into thin air. He's often said to create a cool rush of air as he runs past the visitors to the lake. Then there is the lady of the lake. Yeah, there's another one. There's a lady of the lake all over the place. It's like the great lady, like it's, everywhere. They have one here, too. So since the 1920s, people have witnessed the apparition of a woman in turn-of-the-century clothing glide across Muir Lake on cold, wintry nights and mornings. Some believe her to be a mysterious ice skater, but most know her as the wife of Frederick Converse Clark. Clark was a professor of economics and sociology that lost all of his money when he invested in a Georgia gold mine project that failed miserably. Aside from the obvious blow to his credentials as a professor of economics, but financial ruin left Clark despondent and suicidal. After airing his feelings to Dr. Oxley Thompson and getting no sympathy, the depressed professor took his own life on September 21, 1903, in a garden overlooking Mirror Lake. Clark's wife blamed the university's insensitivity to her husband's plight as the cause of his death and vowed to haunt the grounds after her passing. In 1922, the university built Pomeranian Hall on the site of Clark's suicide garden and appears that the spirit of Mrs. Clark decided it would be a fine building to inhabit when not gliding across the lake. It is here that she is thought to be responsible for doors that lock and unlock of their own accord, the sound of footsteps across empty rooms, and the manipulation of computer voice software, occasionally causing machines that aren't even turned on to greet the living with a dull electronic hello. For reasons unknown, she is most fond of room 213, where she is seen in a pink antebellum dress moving across to a window that overlooks the very lake that her husband last gazed upon before taking his life 120 years ago. So she's the original... Yeah, sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> so Patrick commented that it's safer to be a geek, and my comment back is, unless you're part of Stranger Things. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but geek knowledge helps there. Yeah. And then there's also the Scooby-Doo gang. Yeah. I mean, granted, they all always make it out alive, but Scooby-Doo gang. So, pretty stuff off. I can carry on. Yeah. <laughs> You're gonna make me do that all the time. Okay, fair enough. And I've got a cat. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm currently dealing with this toy because he just wants to play with us. Okay. <laughs> it looks like you are fishing on camera. It does. Uh, fishing for a cat. Yeah. Anyway, so moving along, situated in downtown, close to the courthouse complex, you can find the historic jury room bar. Well, it hasn't always been known as the jury room. The British structure that it resides in claims to be the oldest bar in Ohio. 
Based on maps and records and chart ceiling beams, the bird structure that houses the bar dates back to about 1831. According to historian Doreen Uha Sauer, author of Historic Columbus Taverns, and the land on and the land on which the building sits was originally awarded to American Revolution Jet veteran Thomas Asbury as payment for soldiers. Some also say there may have been a Hopewell Indian burial ground on the property as well. So we, did so have one. we do have one mention of that in here. Yes. Now, the jury room has gone through many changes over its 190-year existence. Even though it originally had no name when it first opened, it has borne many names. Well, Cafe. Urban's Place, the J.F. Gazer Saloon and Boarding House, the 1831 Tavern, and Balls. Just Balls. Balls. But anyway, come 2010, it was it was named the Jury Room. I haven't had enough jury yet. Come 2010, it was renamed the Jury Room. It then briefly was renamed to the Blind Ladies Tavern from 2015 to 2018 and returned to the jury room in August of 2018. In recent years, the jury room has been a popular restaurant and event space in downtown Columbus. <clears throat> now, while none of the other historic buildings that house old bars in Columbus can claim to be as old as the jury, jury room's building, Former owner Uha Sauer says that the oldest distinction depends on how you define it. Another downtown bar, Ringside Cafe, can claim to have continuously operated under a single name since the 1930s. So, got that going on. For many years, the Mound Street business didn't have a name. A wine and bar sign found in the basement likely hung outside one time and its proximity to the courthouse has made it an ever-popular spot for local politicians to wheel and deal over a drink. According to the Civil War, the establishment also hosted Union soldiers, as well as high-ranking Confederate officers from the nearby Camp Chase prison. Ladies of the evening entertained Union soldiers one night and Confederate soldiers the next. A photo from 1876 depicts the structure as the J.F. Blazer Saloon and Boarding House. In that year, the building stood a full three stories above Mound Street. However, by 1885, another photo reveals a two-story structure. At some point between those years, a fire destroyed the top floor of the tavern. Sauer notes that evidence of the fire can be seen above the drop ceiling that was installed after the blaze to hide the smoke and sustain bits of the structure. Ghosts have reportedly haunted the historic and scarred building for years, especially the basement, which the current owner, Megan, will not be in use. While Megan says that she doesn't believe in the paranormal or hauntings of her property, the jury room has been mentioned on numerous paranormal shows and was featured on The Dead File during its first stint as the jury room in 2012. Of the spirits that linger on in the jury room, the most notable dates to the 1850s, during the time when men could get some companionship alongside their beverage of choice. At this time, Frances Miller was the madam of the brothel, and one evening, Francis shot and killed Paulius Rupert, who was drunk and trying to break into the establishment after hours. The story goes a group of very drunk young German men were on their way home from a bar not far from Paulus's favorite brothel. He wanted them to all stop by to visit and get some entertainment from ladies of the night. When they got there, they were closed for business. 
However, he started pounding on the door. When asked who was at the door, Paulus refused to say who he was. He continued pounding and threatened to kick the door down. Francis was frightened and thought they were about to get robbed. She opened the door and shot him dead. She should have only been charged with manslaughter at most, but the news kept calling it murder. Francis Miller was convicted. Paulus was described as an amicable young man during the court trial, and Francis was often referred to in derogatory to remark, remarks for her role with the brothel. Paulus was thought to be stuck at, once with, at what was once his favorite brothel, and while the brothel is long since gone, Paulus still seems intent to try and get his way sometimes. Female employees and customers have been pushed by unseen hands, and some have even seen a tall, shadowy figure stalking through the building. For Francis's part, she seems to still be at the jury room as well. She is noted to take the form of a sad woman, which would make sense for the impossible situation that she found herself in after that fateful night in the 1850s. We noted before that the current owner, Megan, has declared the basement to be off-limits, and one bit of the investigation conducted by the dead files might help explain why. When Amy explored the space, she picked up on a dark and negative energy. The strong presence of an older man in the back of the basement who was on the verge of committing suicide after his only son died in World War I. The spirit was so oppressive that one of the investigators collapsed for a few minutes after crossing paths with his dark presence. In place of the original jury room kept a written log of strange occurrences in both his sightings, and the previous owner, Lossman, said his chef heard piano music late at night. Staff also say that the burners of the stove have been turned on or off by an unseen force. Lothman also recalls some spooky figures have been seen walking up the back steps for a couple of times. One of these bar stools has taken it upon itself to fall over when nobody was around. So, if you're looking for a spooky place to grab a bite to eat in downtown Columbus, the jury room might just be what you were looking for. I remember after I had to go through a room Okay. You're back. I didn't want to <laughs> You know, we, we don't hurt the key. <laughs> Patrick wants to know why balls. I don't know. It's very random. And it's, yeah, just balls. Oh. Just, yeah. My guess, if I had to guess, was that pro- what it was a billiard hall? Probably it was the, a billiard hall, which would make some sort of sense. But, I mean, Francis had balls for shooting the guy that's about as really. Yeah, yeah, kudos to her. But all it takes to go all for them. Yes, I turn into a cat. Yep. I am. You're a cat. A cat. As a mummy cat. I'm... All right. So now we're going to talk about the elevator brewery and drop pub. Uh, this is a craft bar, a microbrewery, a restaurant that has resided in historic Columbia building. Columbia. Columbus. Columbus, yeah, you were Columbia. Autocorrect. <laughs> For some reason, Word does not like Columbus. It wants to autocorrect it to Columbia. Did you add it to the picture? I didn't. I probably should. I mean, granted, it's too late for the show, but that's what happened. Okay. Anyway, so the Columbus Building in downtown for over 20 years. Built in 1897 by the Fox family and originally opened as Fox Brothers Billiards. For your alliteration for the night. 
And the Columbia Building has been, um, are you sure it's not the Columbia Building? Oh, wait, no, 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 no. This is the Columbia Building. In Columbus. In Columbus. Okay. So, yes, but on that same note, Words does like to try and autocorrect Columbus to Columbia. So there was that as well. I got a big one. You do. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, it is a beautiful landmark that generations of Columbus residents and visitors have fallen in love with. The modern bar features a gorgeous hand-carved Philippine mahogany bar that was added to serve the whiskey that was being distilled on the second floor. The luxurious bar predates the building and was constructed for entry into the 1893 Columbian Exposition at the Chicago's World Fair and consequently took home the coveted blue ribbon for craftsmanship. Brought here to Columbus by the boss, it has served as the centerpiece to the building since the original opening. The building is on the National Registry of Historic Landmarks and has been restored to much of its original grandeur. Boasting original architectural elements that include not only the aforementioned bar, but also the intricate mosaic tile flooring, stunning stained glass, and lavish decor, uh, decorative ceilings. Maintaining steady business throughout Prohibition, several myths and legends have been attributed to the building throughout its 100 plus years of existence, including the presence of the residence spirit which may have led many us through the door in hopes of encountering something from the other side of the veil. One of the restaurant's primary features is a large clock in the front of the building. For years, it was stopped at 10.05, before eventually it's being replaced. The clock stoppage was linked to the cold February night in 1909, and Colonel Randolph Pitcher, who is an infamous womanizer who frequented the saloon. Well, that stormy night, Richard was summoned to the door, and what he found there left him change, a changed man. A woman was waiting for him. As he approached her, she revealed the knife that she then used to stab the colonel over and over and over again. Richard stumbled into the bar and died bleeding out on that mosaic floor. When people went outside to see who killed him, they only found a woman's bare footprints in the snow running away from the building. The clock outside the saloon stopped at 10.05, the exact moment of the colonel's death. When we said he would be left a changed man, well, that is technically a change, right? Yeah. He definitely was not in the same condition he went to the door. Yeah. So, uh, Pritchard's ghost now roams the restaurant is seen every now and then, the colonel team manifesting, manifesting as a bright ball of light throughout the facility. His killer is also said to haunt the building as well. It's believed that she actually froze to death on the coldness of the night. It is also said that their footprints mysteriously appear in fresh snow when no one has yet walked along that path. Some have even uh, claimed to see the footprints appear before their eyes. Now, the truth to the story remains elusive. No certificate for Pritchard was shown on a record in 1909. And a scan of the February 1909 Columbus Dispatch turned up nothing as well. Either way, you're bound to see snowy footprints on High Street in the winter. But in February, around the anniversary of the murder, check to see if those are womanly fair feet. Manager Jeff Setzer says that according to the legend on the anniversary of the murder, you'll be able to see the footprints if it's a snowy day. Bartender Rita Ruin admits there's definitely something here. Usually 
Any chairs will move uh, or bar stools were nearly spin around by themselves. One night, when only Sester and the bartender remained in the building, Sester was walking through the dark kitchen when he saw a white presence that made him turn abruptly. He said he felt the hair on the back of his neck raise and the presence disappear. He walked up to the front of the restaurant, talked to the bartender. Before Sester could say anything to the bartender, the bartender turned to him and said, Weirdest thing just happened. Hair on the back of my neck just raised. And I felt this weird presence. Needless to say, Sutter was a little surprised for the immediate confirmation of his own experience. Aside from the ghastly, mysterious murder, there's one lesser-known legend of the elevator brewery involving a tunnel system that runs beneath Columbus. Numerous reports state that the Bot Brothers had access to these tunnels via the basement of the Columbia building, but explorers have been unable to gain access to the basement to investigate these tunnels. They appear to be three separate doorways that could have led to the tunnel system at one time, but at last check they had all been cemented over. The tunnel system was used back in the day to transport goods, that the illegal kind, from business to business. Aside from all the drama, such as a possible murder and illegal transit in and out of the building, it's a cool restaurant and bar to check out. I'd be all for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Of course, I couldn't do a story about Columbus, Ohio without including the cemetery. But of course not. Because cemetery. Yeah. I don't know where all the other kids went, but just got Nico left here. Everybody else seems to have bailed for now. Lulu's been walking around out there. Must have spilled them someplace else. No. Lulu's been found like standing on table. Looks <laughs> like he's stalking somebody. Probably stalking your know. sister. Ah. <sighs> Anyway, yeah, so uh, next we're going to move to the west, away from the heart of downtown and across the Scioto uh, Kyoto River. I should have checked the pronunciation on that. My bad. Well, that's uh, after you But anyway, <laughs> we're going to um, Green Lawn Cemetery. Now, when Columbus was laid out in 1812 to be the new capital city, the four proprietors of Columbus offered land and money to introduce to induce the Ohio General Assembly to come here. In return, these men hoped to make their future selling lots to people who would want to live in the new capital city. For a number of reasons, early churches in Columbus did not generally have a cemetery on the lot surrounding the church. Rather, yeah, or churchyard graveyard. Rather, a town cemetery was needed. To that end, John Kerr came to the rescue. Kerr was one of the four proprietors of Columbus. In 1813, Kerr donated a couple of acres for a cemetery on relatively high ground immediately north of the town's limits at what is now Nationwide Boulevard. Over the years, the North Graveyard grew in size and became the main cemetery of the new borough and then City of Columbus. Kerr was a remarkable fellow. He is sometimes viewed as a rather laid-back and forgettable clerk who happened to donate a cemetery plot to Columbus. He was much more than that, however. Born in Ireland in 1778, Kerr emigrated to America and, like a lot of people, sought his fortune in the Ohio country. Eventually, he decided that Columbus was the place to be. Settling here with his small family, he became actively involved in civic affairs and served as the second mayor of Columbus. In 1823, a malaria fever swept through Columbus, killing many people, old and young. 
Kerr, with a wife and young children, died of the fever and was buried in the Old North Graveyard. He was just 45 years old. In a few years, his old friend and the first mayor of Columbus, Jarvis Pike, would be buried there as well. Over the years, North Cemetery came to stand in the way of progress, however. No more burials were allowed from 1862 to 1876, and eventually the Old North Cemetery was closed. With the opening of Greenlong Cemetery in 1848 and the coming of the railroads to Columbus in the 1850s, public pressure began to build to close the cemetery for redevelopment of the land of the Old North Cemetery. In the 1850s and 1860s, many people were removed from North Cemetery and reburied elsewhere many to Greenlawn Cemetery. Home to over 150,000 burials across 360 acres, Greenlawn Cemetery was the second largest burial ground in Ohio. Since 1848, it has served as the final resting place to many respected Columbus families, plus past governors and politicians. Several graves are said to be haunted, including the Gay Mausoleum and the Hayden Mausoleum. We will come back to this in a moment. Now, by the time the Old North Cemetery was closed in the late 1870s, the graves of a number of people simply could not be found. One of them was Kerr. Over the years after the cemetery closed, a ghost story about Kerr began to be told of a man sometimes seen in the area dressed in clothing of another era. He seemed to be seeking something, but no one could ever come close to him. The North Cemetery became the location of the North Market, and a retail and commercial area grew up nearby. The North Market still occupies the site, and so, too, does the ghost of Kerr. A local historian and tour guide, Columbus Landmarks Association Executive Director, and occasional contributing writer to the local newspaper, Ed Lentz, describes his encounter with Kerr on a cold and foggy night in October many years ago. Lentz was returning uh, the tour car after guiding some guests through the area. And as he neared the corner of Vine and Park Street, a man appeared in the mist perhaps a few yards ahead of him. The man was dressed in the formal clothing of the 1820s and seemed to be on his way to meet someone. When Lentz reached the corner, he could see some distance, and there was, in fact, no one there. Returning to Greenlawn Cemetery, we will turn our attention to the aforementioned mausoleums within the cemetery. Greenlawn is one of the most interesting sites in Ohio. Not only is it the eternal resting place of Eddie Rickenbacker, the most celebrated ace of World War I, and the home of several former Ohio governors, it is also the home of Dr. Snook. Snook was the former head of the Ohio State University Veterinary School and even won a gold medal in the Olympics for pistol shooting. In 1930, he was sent to the electric chair after being convicted of killing his former mistress an old teaching assistant who Snook claimed to have an inappropriate relationship with. It was during one of their encounters that things got out of hand and Snook hit her in the head with a ball peen hammer. I had out to, of hand? I had to really edit this down so that we don't get censored. <laughs> Use your imagination if you are so inclined, but wow. I'll leave it at that. This where Supreme Leader Inspiration came. Maybe. The guy seems to have been at least work. Yeah. Anyway, buried in a grave without his last name to disguise his resting place, Snook is said, is said to have been seen late at night standing over his grave, hanging his head in shame for having been literally caught with his pants down. His grave can be found under the name 
James Howard, 1879 to 1930. Other paranormal activity is said to be centered on the main mausoleum and the Hayden Mausoleum. Arguably the most impressive mausoleum in Greenlawn, Greenlawn, the Hayden Mausoleum was commissioned by banker Charles H. Hayden in 1904. Nearby the Hayden Mausoleum is Greenlawn's Chapel Mausoleum. Dedicated in 1902, the Chapel Mausoleum features two stained glass windows and two mosaics representing wisdom and truth. All were commissioned by P.W. Huntington, the founder of Huntington Bank, and designed by Tiffany's of New York. So, classy. The building was originally erected in 1902 and then was subsequently added to with an additional wing and carillion bells in the 1960s. Packard's personal mausoleum is of a Neo-Egyptian revival style in gray granite. The entranceway features an Egyptian doorway with lotus capitals and a bronze door with grillwood. An open lotus flower represents rebirth. The cornice tops is decorated with a winged solar motif also associated with the afterlife. It is something of a rite of passage for local teenagers to walk up to the door of the Hayden Mausoleum and knock. Often, someone or something will knock back. Perhaps a reply from Mr. Hayden himself? It, could also be, it is also rumored that on rainy nights, passersby can hear the crying of a small child from inside. The Ohio Exploration Society recorded a few electromagnetic field spikes during their visits to the cemetery, and the mausoleums have, been, have recorded electric, electric voice phenomena as well. The creepiest place at Greenlawn, however, isn't actually affiliated with the cemetery. Greenlawn Abbey is located on Greenlawn Avenue, just outside the cemetery. This beautiful mausoleum has often been associated with the Greenlawn Cemetery, but they are not actually connected to one another in any way. In fact, the Greenlawn Abbey was named after the cemetery to take advantage of the cemetery's good name. Built in 1927, the Abbey is an awesome structure built from Ohio limestone and Italian marble. It was, a, it was the largest and finest mausoleum in Columbus with enough space for 654 internments. There are several notable eternal residents of the Abbey, including the world-famous Howard Thurston, the magician, five times. <laughs> You're right, Vincent. Okay. Okay. There is also five-time Columbus Mayor George Carr and members of the Lewis Sells family, who owned the second-largest traveling circus in the early 1900s. Rumors of hauntings at the mausoleum have been attached to the building for decades. The ghost of Thurston the Magician is said to roam the hall of the Abbey, as well as a woman who is said to haunt the second floor. Even if these stories are folklore, the Greenlawn Abbey is a very creepy place inside. Maybe it's knowing that just inches behind the plaque on the wall lays the remains of someone who has been long gone. In the late 1900s, Greenlawn Abbey fell into a state of deep disrepair. Vandals had made a mess of the neglected structure inside and out. In 2008, restoration efforts began, and opportunities for paranormal investigations opened up. Again, the Ohio Exploration Society managed to record several EVPs in the split when the place was open, and they were also able to shoot video inside the Abbey. The group's encounters included hearing one of the metal gates 
open during their visit to the building. They expected to find an intruder in the building, but upon inspection, no one was there. Restoration work on the heavily vandalized Abbey began in 2006, and in recent years, the Abbey has been a focal point of the community. In fact, they sometimes host special events, including an evening of magic that will be held this next month, Saturday, August 19th. Sounds like a delightfully creepy evening of entertainment in an amazing historic structure. So, if you want to go ahead and catch a magic show in a mausoleum in Columbus, Ohio, that is haunted, so buy tickets now. Drive. August 19th, it's your chance. Again, it's Green Lawn Abbey. If you look it up, Green Lawn Abbey, Columbus, Ohio, should pop right up for you. Patrick posted it for us. Ah, cool. Good deal. But yeah, a magic show. Sounds, sounds interesting. Yeah, it does. Then we're already busy on the news. We're always busy. Almost always. We'll get to that in a minute. We're going to touch, we're going to touch on that at, at the end of the show. In the meantime, I think we got one more story. I think it's one more story. Okay. I think. I could be wrong. All right, so we're going to go off to the Kelton House Museum and Garden, which is a Greek revival Italian mansion in the Discovery District of downtown Columbus, Ohio. The museum was established by the Junior League of Columbus and to promote the understanding of family life, customs, and decorative arts during the 19th century Columbus and to educate visitors about the Underground Railroad. Fernando Cortez Kenton was a, a merchant from Vermont who rose to prominence in Columbus as a dry goods wholesaler. He and his wife, Sophia Langdon Stone Kelton, built the Kelton House on Town Street in 1852. They were firm abolitionists who used their home as a stop on the Underground Railroad. Fernando Kelton was also was so respected for his abolitionist work that he was selected to be a pallbearer for the funeral procession of Abraham Lincoln when Lincoln's remains were brought to Columbus on their way to Illinois for burial. The Kelton's eldest son, Oscar, joined the 95th Ohio Infantry Company A in 1862 to fight against slavery. He rose to the rank of first lieutenant before being killed in the Battle of Rice's Crossroads on June 10th of 1864. The same year, the Kelton took in Martha Hartway, a young runaway displaced woman from Virginia. She was raised as part of the family and her marriage in 1874 to Thomas Lawrence, carpenter whose work can still be seen in the Kelton house. The house passed on to the Kelton's son, Frank. He married Isabella Morrow Colt, a suffragette who was one of our first four women to attend Ohio State University. Frank later traded houses with his brother Edwin to better accommodate the various sizes of their family. Edwin's daughter, Grace, uh, was the last member of the family to own the house. She lived there until her death in 1975. She was one of the first people in the country to make her living as an interior decorator, having both studied at Parsons School of Design and the Craft Institute. Her work is widely recognized, and she was one of the individuals consulted on the Jacqueline Kenny redecoration of the White House in 1960. After Grace's death, the house was left to the Columbia Columbus Foundation. They leased it to the Junior League of Columbus who restored it to represent the time period between 1852 and 1900. The house now operates as a museum and events facility. Approximately 80 to 90 percent of the furnishings that visitors can see were actually owned by the Kelton family. 
It says several members of the Kelton family still haunt the home with frequent reports of apparitions in the form of multiple family members, unexplained voices and whispers, disappearing items, and rearranged furniture. Strange things have been happening since the beginning of the home's renovation in 1976. Workers returned to find the furniture they moved that day back in the original position and supplies had also been moved. Museum director Georgina Rutcher said that uh, that was the first sign that it was not going to be your ordinary house museum experience. They also had just installed alarms and the fire department suggested that they close the interior doors as a preventative measure. Evidently, that's not something the house wanted. Almost every night around midnight, the motion detectors would activate. Police would find the interior doors open again. No one was in the house. No exterior doors or windows had been broken. Evidently, the police advised the junior league to leave those doors open, and the alarm fell silent. Uh, closed doors. Can't have closed doors. I mean, the family lived there forever, so <laughs> I wouldn't surprise me there's at least a mouse there in the kitchen. <laughs> Right? No closed doors, right, no buddy? Yeah. We get screamed. We get hagged screamed. Not so much from you. Your brother. Vincent's the screamer. Didn't hide. Anyway. <laughs> uh, almost every night. Oh, I already read that. Next. Um, even today, the staff will close a certain closet at night only to find it open the next morning. Even when they have blocked it with a chair. Those ain't messing around. That's something bigger than a cat. It is. Cat has friends. Anyway. <laughs> I do. <laughs> a volunteer once saw a woman enter one of the bedrooms to which the volunteer faced as she spoke to some guests. The right fair recalled when the volunteer went to ask the woman to step back out of the off-limits space. She found no one in the room. Just a peaceful feeling. Another volunteer ran into what she assumed to be a tall man. She turned and apologized to said air. Someone told Rutger another day, I didn't know there was any, anything going on today, explaining that she saw someone dressed as the Union soldier outside, leaning against the wall. There wasn't an event that day, but the description matched that of Oscar Kelton, the son who had died during the Civil War in 1864. Oscar's also been seen haunting the garden, smoking a cigarette as he goes about his business. Though it's mostly people associated with the Kelton house who show up as ghosts, other strangers have been reported during the wedding that are held at the facility. Some guests see a little girl in an old-fashioned dress playing or running around. Later, they realize the child is gone and didn't belong to anyone who was at the wedding. Brides occasionally get set out of place, get uh, set out uh, place settings for any ghosts who might want to drop by for the wedding. This little girl is sometimes also associated with activity in the house as well. One of the most common ghostly aspects in the Kelton house has to do with the dolls. People say that uh, if you work here and every once in a while, they'll come inside to open up for the day or whatever, and they'll find a doll will be flipped over. It's a regular occurrence, and the guys just say the ghost are playing with them, and perhaps the spirit of the little girl. So, who is this little ghostly girl? Well, one summer, two sisters visited the house, a part of the family who lived near Kelton House in the 1950s and 60s, and they knew the family. Well, they actually 
1960, a group of neighborhood children were playing outside uh, nearby Franklin Avenue, as they often did. And one girl asked, Susie, can I play with your doll? Another girl asked, Susie, don't you want to play with us? But Susie ignored their pleas and invitations. Later on, they found out that Susie had died the previous day. So Susie might still be around playing with the doll. Mm-hmm. The sisters had another board member, and Richard uh, went into the house. She was one of the guys there. The sister who had explained about Susie jumped or was startled a little bit and said, oh, your air conditioning must have just kicked on. Richard watched the sister's hair move, and no one was next to her. Also, Pelton House's air conditioning is notoriously noisy. The house remained silent. Richard said that to deflect and reply, she said, oh, yes, it must have. But as she spoke, the paper the woman was holding folded in half uh, spontaneously, and they all just looked at each other and decided, next room. Neil Kamen, a museum docent, or excuse me, Nellie Kamen, a museum docent, leads the ghost tours in the museum. And she dresses the part. She is uh, for sharing her personal interactions with the apparition. Uh, like the time she was dusting photographs, suddenly Nellie heard the phone start to emit some of the photographs. Thinking that she may have accidentally done something and caused the sound, she checked to make sure that it was completely off, but the sound continued without power to the instrument. Seems somebody was in the mood for some music that day. Now, sure, it was one of the ghosts. They all liked manipulating the lights. Now, let's have the lights turn all the way up, and something was off. As bright as the lights up were, they were not penetrating the room. The effect is bizarre. It's almost certainly something that's supernatural. The sharpest grief may have fallen upon Anna Helton, Fernando's eldest daughter. Within two years' time, she lost her brother, her father, and her newlywed husband. House volunteers and staff sometimes encounter a woman in a burgundy dress, pacing in the back parlor. Richard assumes this is probably Anna. She's waiting for word of their fate, trapped in worry more than a century later. And the encounters just keep evolving. Richard and other staff members witnessed a new horrifyingly red stain on an important white couch fade before their eyes. Recently, the house was suddenly filled with the smell of cigarette smoke. Just for an instant, but enough that your clothes will smell like cigarette smoke when you leave the building. One thing the Junior League won't do, though, is allow paranormal investigations on this property. Those who try are escorted out. The space is respected as is the privacy of the staff and volunteers who prefer not to talk about the building's spooky experiences. The hauntings are only a small part of this house's history, so the museum tours will only touch briefly on it during the Halloween season. But the spirits that walk through the rooms and the grounds keep to their own timetable, wandering in and out as they sleep. <laughs> <laughs> the live stream is great for my ADHD. So much stuff going on, including ghost stories. This is awesome. <laughs> Apparently, whatever you're doing back there is showing up as is getting caught on the audio cat. I mean, I hear the toilet. I know, I hear it too. Or their cat in bed. Take, take your, your water bottle and just slide it over a little bit. I'm just curious. What's going on? there. First we're frozen. Got Nico, but we don't need to show you blood. There we go. 
Uh, check button. What? I know I'm not paying attention to you. We're on Facebook. Can't quite really tell, but you can see, you know, she's a kind of in the camera. She's kind of an the way back there. Yeah, a, a little bit of an indeterminate lump on the table back there in the camera. But the light's not quite hitting her eyes right. Yeah. But anyway, that was our last story for this evening. Yes. So yeah, Columbus, Ohio. Freaking haunted. Yeah. because uh, that was just like the tip of the iceberg. So As I said, I could do one on the entire campus alone. It won't be the last time you hear about Columbus, Ohio. It won't be the last time you hear about Ohio because... Oh, yeah. No, no, no. In the future, there'll be a Cincinnati script, too. And, I mean, well, you you had started... This was originally intended to be the... The Ohio State. ...haunted state of Ohio script. And there was just too much, too many great stories... In Columbus that it just became Columbus. So... There will be a generalized Ohio episode at later date, like at some point. But our next one's on in Toronto. Yeah, we're we're crossing the border. Yeah. We're we're uh, heading heading north of the border to uh, the uh, beautiful city of Toronto. So that'll be August 14th. Yep. And um, trying to think. So we have touched on Toronto a couple of times before. We have we I know that we had at least a couple of locations in Toronto. They were in our Haunted Canada um, episode that we did. I'd have to go. I need to go back and look. It's been a while. Maybe even a couple of years. Maybe been that long? Oh, good. I don't know. It all bleeds together. Uh, I, I got it back because we also did Victoria. And we did it. We did Vancouver. And mm, we didn't do an exclusive Vancouver one. We did? Um, no. Um, I, think, I think we did Canada a little over a year ago. Okay. But, um, yeah, we, we've done Canada, and then we did one exclusive to Victoria, British Columbia. Um, but and, of course, we've also talked about other places in Canada, and, like, on hotels and trains and highways. Mm-hmm. I do need to go back, and um, uh, I'll look them all up. I'm going to – I'll drop notes about them in, like, the, the episode description that I still need to craft for it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so, um, yeah. Toronto. Coming up. Yep. Ye, ye old city of York. It used to be York. Yep. Before, then, before they renamed it Toronto. But then after that, on the 28th, we're going to do Haunted University Part 2. Because it's almost time to go back to school. It is time to go back to school. Basically, yes. And Patrick does want more stories for Columbus, Ohio. Okay. And I mean, I got to say, I mean, you, know, you think about it, it's like, I mean, a lot of people, people love, love Dragon, Ohio. I mean, Ohio's awful. Ohio's got a lot going on. Yeah. And you and I need to get to see the park. Yes, we do. But the stories for Columbus were really cool. Yeah. And then diving, really like diving in and um, doing the research for this episode. Right. Yeah, I, I want to go visit Columbus. <laughs> there, there are things I want to go see in Columbus. This is what he's been playing with. And he's higher than a kite now. And it is appropriately, yes, you're saying this correct. It, it is, is a pill. It is a pill. It's a catnip pill. It's a catnip pill. Is he stoned? Okay. Anyway, but yeah, so that's what's coming up. Um, two weeks. We got Toronto. 
four weeks we got. Hunting University Part Two. Yeah, Hunting University Part Two in four weeks. That's just the Facebook Live stuff. We're we are basically we are doing tours. We have availability 365 days a year. Yeah. So we have started the choose your own tour. So the official official first one is next Monday. Yes. Um, so again, if you are the first person to buy the two tickets for that tour, you get to choose the tour we do that night. And again, you do have to do this. At least two days in advance. Two days in advance. So if you want to take, like if you want to, nobody has booked for next Monday yet. If you want to do the pick your own tour for next Monday, you need to book it by like midnight, um, midnight Saturday into Sunday. So yeah. um, we otherwise do, we have the night off. Otherwise we have the night off. Um, but yeah, it's kind of balancing things out for us a little bit. Yeah. Totally uh, burning the candle at both ends. But um, we would love to be able to host people every night of the year. And uh, we just, I mean. I would love to put my guys toward them. Yes. But in the meantime, so this is how we're, we're starting to build. And we have six amazing tours. Tours. everybody can hit. Yeah. On so, the night and operating. So, because like right now, our Creepy Tales on campus and the Specters of Shades of Court End, they're only offered on alternating Fridays. Which can be very difficult. I mean, if you're working on a Friday or something like that, good luck making it. You're not going to catch those two brand new tours. So they are options for the pick your own tour now. So you can go ahead. You can jump on those opportunities to uh, go ahead and um, choose one of the nights that they're offered. So next month, starting this next Monday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, it's going to be a pick your own tour night, and um, it's going to open up. It's almost going to be wide open in September. September it'll be. Sunday through Thursday will be pick your own tour nights. Friday, Saturday, we will set the schedule. Yep, boys, we have our fixed schedule for Fridays and Saturdays. Um, and I think in October, I think it's going to be Monday, Monday Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. But then wintertime, wintertime is going to be Sunday through Thursday every week. And that includes holidays. Yep. I mean, you, if, so if you got family in and you want to go out. Yep. You buy tickets, we'll go up. Yep, and this does not replace our private tours. If you want to go ahead and book a private tour, by all means, go ahead, call us, book a private tour. Because to pick your own tour, you may get to pick the tour, but it's other not going to be... Other people are going to be able to buy tickets. Other people yes. will be able to buy tickets. It's not a private tour. But it also doesn't have a ticket, a minimum ticket requirement. Uh, it does, too. Two. Oh, two. You yeah. have to buy two tickets. Oh. So, yeah. I don't have any. I mean, <laughs> very... Very, very rarely have we only had, have we ever only sold one, one ticket for a public tour. Now, if we do that, well, we're going to give that tour to that one person. But we have done it. And that you, that'll still be options for, like, the Friday and Saturday stuff. But for the pick-your-own-tour, that is kind of the cost for selecting the tour. You do have to buy at least two tickets to pick the tour. And also, again, you do have to do it two days in advance. Right, well, correct. You don't have to buy eight minimum tickets. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, so, yeah. But anyways, so that's the deal with the Pink Girl on Shore. We're very excited about the possibilities. Yeah. Uh, as of right now, next week, as we said, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is going to be Pink Girl on Shore. Tuesday and Wednesday, already spoken for. Yeah. So those opportunities are basically... They've for, already been selected. They've already been selected. You can go on. You can hop on the, the public tours that are going to be offered that night. I think... Coincidentally, it works out that Tuesday is going to be Churchill and Wednesday is going to be Shadows. Mm-hmm. But um, Monday's still open, and 
And I think there's one tour for the following week has been selecting as well. Yeah. So, so yeah. yeah. So that's that. Um, also, we're going to be at Virginia Comic Con this coming month. Uh, yes. On the 19th. 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 So, so you can check out our table there. See Lee and Marsha talk about spooky stuff, buy spooky stuff. Also, um, Virginia Comic Con is cool. Yes, it, it is. is. It's, it's a cool Comic Con over at the RAI Raceway. Yeah, Virginia um, International Raceway. Um, so. Beth and I did it for the first time last November. Yeah, November. Last November, Beth and I did it for the first time, and we enjoyed ourselves so much that we signed um, up for two more. Times. Yeah, we signed up for two more. So next yeah. month and again in November. Yep. So um, we're looking forward to that now. I mean, well, fortunately for for Lee and Marsha, Beth and I are unfortunately not available for next month. Comic-Con. We have to go move a family member into college. Yeah, so we are going to be uh, out of town doing that, but Lots of Richmond will still, again, be represented by the amazing Lee and our amazing guy, Marsha. They will be there we'll, um, to go ahead and chat up spooky stuff and sell some spooky stuff. So yes. And Patrick, sure I know that. you like to cosplay there in cosplay contest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we were super psyched when um, they – Came out and they announced they were doing it like three times this year. Yeah, he's, yeah, he, he, he likes to do it at least twice a year, but as many times as three times a year. Yeah. Um, COVID got away for a while. Oh yeah, um, but he 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 I think he was the first con to operate in Richmond after COVID hit. Yeah. Um, and to our knowledge, no COVID illness cases came from the con. Mm-hmm. So he's very proud of that. Um, and then in September we have another um, market we're going to be part of. Um, the Kismet. Kismet Market. We're going to be at Rich the last Thursday of the month. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll be there with our spooky jewelry and our car stickers. Um, just that stuff because it's, stuff. it's a maker's market. It's a maker's market, so the stipulation is that everything has to be designed or made, basically. So we won't have the books and uh, we won't have uh, the paranormal investigation equipment, but all the best jewelry will be available as well as. Um, uh, um, paranormal is normal um, stickers and, and all uh, touristic family yes. stickers. So. Yeah. We'll be there with that. And then it's going to be October. And October oh, is boy. going to be nuts. Yeah, we got, we're going to be crazy. Yeah. We're going to be at Nightmare Weekend. Um, let's, not, let's not spill all the beans yet. Yeah. I know, but tickets are not going to be on sale for that until did like... you all see what I did there? I yeah. enticed people yeah. to watch next time. Yeah, you need to keep watching. <laughs> yeah. so, um, we're going to have more announcements about more awesome stuff coming up. Um, but yeah, and, and, and even if you can't watch our full hour long this thing, which we love to do and we love it when you join us for it, um, if you can't watch the whole thing, just stay tuned. Huh? Get to the end. Get to the end, or just keep an eye on our Facebook page. Oh, yeah. We, 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 <laughs> we, 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 we update regularly. We have the events on there. We're going to have all of it on there. We're so. starting to work on TikTok. We are. Um, I, I, I got to push them in the right direction. <laughs> I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting nudged um, yeah. with a cattle prod, but I'm getting nudged <laughs> um, to, uh, to do more TikTok. So.
distill them down into stories that are probably going to be about, you know, a minute and a half to two minutes. So it'll be like nice little snippets of uh, ghost stories that I'm going to try to go ahead and post on the TikTok and channel. You have. He said that like an old guy, though. <laughs> I, am, I am an old guy. There are people on TikTok that are saying the, you know, now the older generation on TikTok, you know, those, no, 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 no. Those that were born in the mid-90s. Oh, I know, I know. I'm the older generation on TikTok, by the way. And that's oh, a really, really I'm fun the old, old generation. But to be fair, Santa's on TikTok, too. So, mm. is the virtual vampire on TikTok yet? I no. don't know. But you're giving me ideas you should not give me. But, yeah, so uh, <laughs> if you are interested, yeah, it's, our TikTok handle is just simply Haunts of Richmond. So you can go ahead and look us up. Right now I just got some little just some snippets. Just some not, little not, snippets for, narrative. like, like just some sure ads more than anything else on there. But hopefully I'll be able to get in and do some little little I have a suggestion micro story type stuff. Um, did we talk about John Marshall House? Uh, we, do, oh, yeah. um, we do have another night, special night at John Marshall House on the 26th. Yep. So definitely check that out. As we said about recording, the tickets are already full. Um, so definitely, if you want to come out and see that, um, go you know, inside the building. I feel yeah. like we're like you, I feel like we're skimping on the fact that we go. Yeah, you guys can't help us. This is as far as tours go. This is the only like pure ghost tour that we have that goes inside anywhere. Um, Unless it rains in the bottom or somewhere. But, yeah. 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 But we don't hear about that. 30, 35 to 40 minutes inside by one of their doses. And in also, because we don't have overhead lighting. Yep. yep. And also, <laughs> a member of CPRI is there, Southern Paranormal Research, and they explain the different evidence that they have caught and experiences they've had during their investigations. Usually it's our good friend Brad. Um, I think one occasion will wind up being one of the other guys. But in any case, all the folks at CPRI, good people, um, they do excellent work in the paranormal investigation community. So, um, yeah, I strongly recommend if you don't follow them already, um, they're they're not on Instagram. So they're on Facebook. Yeah, so it's just CPRI. Center for Paranormal Research and Investigation. That is their their page. Go ahead and check them out. Um, they they do they just do a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. So um, these are really cool guys. Yeah. They are, and uh, you can uh, on top of like come and see them participate in the um, stuff that we do at John Marshall House. They will oftentimes participate in um, like Paracons or mm-hmm. Comic Con. They're going to be at Dragon Con. Yeah. Dragon Con down in Atlanta. Yeah. Atlanta. Yeah. So they they'll be doing their own like public paranormal investigation. Yeah, uh, fun stuff. particularly at Bacon's Castle. Yeah. Bacon's Castle, they do... I got to get one of those. For yeah. Those they do, like, the ghost tours of Bacon's Castle down there in Surrey County. Um, they would do a lot of work with Preservation Virginia, hence the John Marshall House, um, and also the uh, Virginia State Park System. Now, that said, the stuff that they do with Virginia State Parks, um, not necessarily open to the public, but... Um, and you can review their yep. research. Uh, they have an open Google file. It's part of their educational um, background is that they have all their evidence once it's been reviewed and it's posted so um, everybody can take a look at it. Yeah, because, yeah, they are a, they're a, 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 a legit 501c3 nonprofit organization. So uh, 
doing great work. All right. Yeah. So, Eddie, that was nice. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we get excited about things. It is. It's hard yeah. not to get excited about things. Might as well calendar fill up so fast this time of year. That is an excellent question. Well, yeah, I know. We say we have a slow season. We don't. Not really. You know, we're working hard not to have a slow season. Yeah. It's December. No, honestly, it is December. It is December. December, things really hit the brakes for us. If you want to get a probably your, your best opportunity to, like, maybe take advantage and get a small, intimate, private tour on one of the book-your-own tour things, um, it's probably in December. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, and guys, December goes towards you. Yeah. It, I can't guarantee it's private because, well, as you said, as you said, you know, it's like the whole, you go ahead, you choose the tour, but we open to the public. But a lot of people are focused on Christmas. And They're holiday not, parties. And holiday if someone parties. wants to go to the Christmas tour, Lee would be super excited yeah. to get your Christmas tour. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. remember, December is the original spooky season. Yeah. It truly is. And, so. and so we still have to talk to our friends at Richborough about that. But oh. uh, yes, we have for several years now, we've done uh, reading events at Richborough Brewing, um, where we do like this whole traditional Victorian ghost story type thing. So yeah, we'll. Uh, I'm sure that we'll probably get one of those on the calendar for December, but that probably we won't really talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Right, right now. now. First. <laughs> Don't. That was a open mouth reminder for us. Do that. Schedule it. Admittedly, though, you're not going to hear about it again until at least November. <laughs> at least November. So, anyways, we are totally rambling. Oh yeah. Um, Hi. Okay. Yeah, we're done now. Again, keep up with the Facebook page. We'll be posting stuff as it comes up. A lot of awesome stuff going on. Uh, keep up with us. If you have any questions, by all means, shoot us a note anytime. Happy to hear from you. But again, thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you all have a good night. Night night. Bye.